0: Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with Yahweh and my recompense with my God. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says Yahweh, in a time of favor, I answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On the bare heights shall be their pasture, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the, the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, Yahweh's forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares Yahweh, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left all alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, our hearts need your word. There's all this noise around us. The Creator God who's spoken. We just heard your voice as your word is read. And we need it. So together, we, we, we want to unite our prayers right now and ask for your Holy Spirit to take this word and cause it to go deep down within us, shaping us, even transforming us, making us alive. Whatever it is we need, use it as you see fit. This we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. preposterous. You know what that word means? Contrary to reason and common sense. Utterly absurd, the dictionary says. You could say far-fetched. There's an old musical called Guys and Dolls. The character Sky Masterston relates advice that his father gave him about far-fetched bets. He says, one of these days in your travels, a guy is going to come to you and show you a nice, new brand, a nice brand new deck of cards on which the seal has not yet been broken. This man is going to offer to bet you that he can make the jack of spades jump out of that deck and squirt cider in your ear. Now, son, You do not take this bet, for as sure as you stand there, you're going to wind up with an ear full of cider. In other words, people don't initiate far-fetched bets unless they're sure they can win them, however unlikely they may seem. And in today's passage, we see two, you could call them far-fetched prophecies. But however unlikely they seem, God is confident that he will do it. So the first prophecy is about the servant Israel in verses 1 to 13. The servant Israel in verses 1 to 13. And the other is about Mother Zion. Mother Zion in verses 14 to 26. If you wanted to make it a, a tongue twister, you could call them... Uh, Far-fetched foretellings. But I typically prefer precision over alliteration, so I am going to call these two points or these two prophecies audacious prophecies. Audacious prophecies. My methodology in in going through both of them is going to be identical. I'll I'll make sure we grasp, understand the prophecy itself and just how audacious it it is, And then we'll see how God fulfilled the prophecy. Far-fetched foretellings finally fulfilled? I'm not going to go there. But it's not just a nifty exercise we're doing. It's not an intellectual curiosity. We're not trying to figure out, how did the card shark end up putting cider in someone's ear? These audacious prophecies are here for a reason Look down at verse 9. This is written for prisoners. It's written to those in darkness. Verse 10, it's written to those who are hungry and thirsty. Look at verse 14. It's written to us when we feel like God's forgotten us, we're forsaken by Yahweh. Look at verse 24. Sorry, yeah, verse 24. It's written to those who feel like they're pawns at the hands of the powerful, those who wonder whether anyone is strong enough to fix this mess. And what's the goal to which it's all moving? You see it at the end of verse 23. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So I think we really need this chapter. We're going to look at two audacious prophecies, but I want us to allow God's spirit to use them to revive our flagging souls, to restore our hope, to enable us to wait on the Holy One of Israel. So audacious prophecy number one, it's about servant Israel, verses 1 to 13. Let's begin by making sure we understand it. In the first six verses, the servant is speaking. In the next seven verses, Yahweh is speaking about the servant. Now who this figure is, this servant, can be a bit hard to pin down, but it is clear that it's Yahweh's Servant, we see him referred to as servant in verse three, in verse five, in verse six, and in verse seven. So we've been going through our series in Isaiah, we've used this term Isaiahic clues. And it's a kind of fancy term. I made it up. It's, it's nothing spectacular. The concept I didn't make up but the term. But the idea is that Isaiah, just the way he likes to write is give a little hint here, build a little bit more here, build a little bit more here, and kind of unfold something. There's something about discovery. He's inviting his hearers in to kind of where's this going? What's this going on? And servant, the idea of servant is one of Isaiah's favorite isianic clues we saw it first introduced in chapter 42 verses 1 to 9 and we're going to see this servant figure again in our next chapter chapter 50 and then again in chapter 53 each time we meet him isaiah tells us just a little bit more about this mysterious figure it's kind of like one of those polaroid pictures that gets clearer and clearer as it develops So that's who this is about. And the first shocking thing we learn about this servant comes in verse 1. Who is the servant talking to? Is it to Israel? To Judah, God's covenant people? Nope. None of the above. You see who he's talking to? The coastlands. People from afar. And it goes on and tells us a bit more. Like Jacob, the people of Israel in chapters 44 and 46, God has called this servant from the moment of his conception. And like Cyrus in chapter 45, God has called his servant by name. So as Isaiah is building, you get the sense that this servant is kind of a big deal. And then verse 2 says, amplifies that with prophetic imagery. His mouth itself is a sharp sword, likely pointing to his powerful words, but it could have the sense of a warrior too, a warrior who's protected by God. And he is a polished arrow in God's quiver. Again, this likely hinting at a prophetic messenger, but also hints of uh, a warrior language too. And then verse 3 further intensifies things, this time reporting what Yahweh has said about the servant. Who, Who is this grand servant who speaks to the nations? Who is this sword of God, this polished arrow in God's quiver? It's Israel. The Israel in whom God is uniquely glorified. Now this is an audacious statement. Now, it's important to remember here that Israel isn't just a nation because later this Israel is going to redeem the nation of Israel. Israel is also the name of the great patriarch of the Jewish people. That's why they were called Israel because it was after the patriarch Israel. Now what if I stood up to you and I said, God has said of me, I am George Washington, in whom America will be glorified. Feels like a boxer or a rapper level of braggadocious, doesn't it? But it's a rapper for whom we're stands. If we remember the servant from chapter 42, this servant is our hope. He brings justice and light to the nations. He's the one who rescues the faintly burning wick and the bruised reed. He's the one who's going to rescue the prisoners. So we are on the sideline cheering, go sword mouth, rah, rah, shiny arrow. If he can't get them, no one can. He's our man. but the celebration comes to a quick halt. The servant himself reigns on our parade. Look at verse four. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Ooh, shut down the party. Our great hope feels as though his work is without form and void. Our hero fears feels mired in the vanity of Ecclesiastes. All his work is for nothing. But here's what's interesting in the face of that feeling of failure, look at what the servant does. It's something different than most of us do when we're feeling like all is vanity. It's at the end of verse 4. Yet, surely, my right is with Yahweh, and my recompense with my God. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. He endures the shame with his eyes fixed on his father's wise plan. And I I think this is actually an instructive word for us who feel like our efforts are for naught you ever feel like that as a parent or a grandparent or maybe you look at your life at this point and you're like the ship sailed I'm past being able to be useful to God I just encourage you to follow the example of this servant and wait on God trust him his kingdom grows like unseen leaven, and it grows and spreads in imperceptible ways. So be obedient to what he's called you to do, and then entrust the results to him. We're not surprised that our story does continue. God responds to servant Israel's despondency, and his words actually raise the level of audacity. Look at verses 5 and 6. Sit in silence. No, that's not. That's chapter 47. 49, here we go. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I'm honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my strength has, and God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This servant Israel is going to be the means by which the nation Israel is going to come back to God. But that's not enough. This servant Israel is also going to be the means by which the nations will come to know salvation, even to the ends of the earth. And remember who this servant is speaking these words to. He's telling the nations that that's what's going to happen. Audacious claims by the servant himself. Although he's quoting God, but they're still audacious. And then Yahweh's words pick up from verses 7 to 13. And it's even more audacious. The servant will be despised and rejected by man. And yet ultimately the nations will bow down to him. Verse 7. In verse 8, Yahweh is going to make this servant a covenant in the glorious day of salvation. And then in verses 9 to 12, the servant's task is to restore what's desolate, to speak to those imprisoned, to those in darkness, to those who hunger and thirst. He'll restore. He'll free. He'll bring light. He'll be the bread and the living water. And who's it that's going to be who comes to him? Verse 12 says it's going to be his own people, but it also says it'll be people from afar. Do you hear the echo of verse 1? People from the north and the west. People from obscure and foreign, Cyanese. And verse 13 gives the global response, the whole of creation rejoicing because of what God has done in his servant to bring about the comfort that he promised at the start of chapter 40. He's brought comfort to his people. He's had compassion on the afflicted. One of my favorite descriptions in all of what God says here is there in the middle of verse 10. Who's going to be leading them? It's one who has pity on them. He loves us and cares for us. That's who's leading us. This is is an audacious prophecy. It's far-fetched, forth-telling. A servant figure who identifies as the patriarch Israel himself A servant who speaks to all nations, promising to redeem both Israel and all nations. Bringing about in himself God's day of salvation, in himself establishing a covenant. This figure will bring liberty to those who are captive, light to those in darkness. And he'll call a people, his own people, from every tribe and tongue and nation. From the vantage point of Isaiah, think how crazy this prophecy is. From the vantage point of ancient Israel, think how far-fetched this is. Preposterous. And yet this very passage is quoted seven times in the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 1, twice in chapter 2 and in chapter 19, it tells us Jesus is the one with the sword mouth. In Acts 13, Paul quotes verse 6 to explain why he was bringing the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul quotes verse 8 and says that now is that day of salvation which Isaiah foretold. And in Revelation 7, if you guys know Revelation 7, we're given this beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And in that picture, it says there's people from every tribe and tongue and language gathered around the heavenly throne worshiping Jesus. And when it describes that scene, It quotes verse 10. In other words, the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, look back on this passage of Scripture and say, this is exactly what Jesus did. He fulfilled this. He was incarnated and then known by his father from the womb given the name Jesus by God when he was yet still in the womb. He was an Israelite of Israelites. He was the seed of Abraham that brought about the promised blessing to all the nations. He came first to bring Israel back to her God and then shone as a light to the nations, beckoning both Jew and Gentile to himself. He suffered setbacks and human discouragement, crying out, how long? Faithless generation. But he brought the kingdom of God near, rescuing those loaded down by the weight of this fallen world. And then he offered up his life in atoning sacrifice for our sins, He made a way for sinners like us to be reconciled with our God. Salvation, a new covenant in Christ's blood. This audacious prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. Which has the implication that The servant in this passage when he addresses the coastlands and those from afar isn't just speaking to ancient Egypt or Assyria or Tyre. The words here are Jesus speaking to us. He is our light. He is our bread. He's our redeemer if we will hear his voice. And come to him. So that's the first audacious prophecy. And the second one is very closely linked to it. it. Comes in verses 14 to 26. It's about Mother Zion. We're going to use the same methodology. Make sure we understand the prophecy. Just how far-fetched it is. And then we'll see how it is in fact Fulfilled. Recall that in verse 13, God has just announced that in his servant, his people are comforted. But Israel, of Isaiah's day, isn't buying it. Look at what they say in verse 14. You always forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. you ever feel that way? They know I have. I actually think this verse indicates that the whole chapter in some ways is written for us when that's how we feel. We who can feel forsaken, we who can feel forgotten. We who hear the scripture say that God has comforted us, but protest, I don't feel very comfortable. So how does Yahweh respond when we tell him, we feel he's forsaken us? How does Yahweh respond when he push back and say, no, it's not comfort I feel, it's abandonment? Does he spank us and send us to our rooms? Does he say, if that's how you treat me after all I've done for you, well, you can just get out of our house. Look what he says in verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Have you known a woman who was bereaved of her baby? Maybe a sister, or a friend of the family, or your wife? Maybe you? Does that woman forget her child? Maybe some of the tears that are welling up in chest right now answer that question. And it's also how God answers Israel. As one commentator puts it, the love of Yahweh transcends the best love that earth can offer. He says his love for his chosen people is indelibly etched into the very palms of his hands. Zion, the people, and the place of her dwelling are continually on his heart and mind. If you are in Christ, God has not forgotten us. It may feel as though he has. Our circumstances may attempt to persuade us that he has forsaken us. But his word you hear and to me is that we are not forgotten. We are on his mind and in his heart even more than a newborn baby is on his mother's heart. Then in Verse 17, that's when the prophecy really starts. It comes to Zion, whom he's going to liken to a mother. Now, the metaphors start out a bit mixed. The mother's also a bride, and the mother's also a city, but the dominant image that's going to carry through is of her as a mother. But verses 17 and 18 kind of describe the 401. Traffic running both ways, and the highway is packed. Inbound on the 401, you have builders who are coming in to rebuild the city. Outbound, you have all the enemies who are trying to destroy the city. Then again, inbound on the 401, you have these people who are ornaments on the bride's wedding dress who are these inbound jewels. In verse 20, it's going to become clear they are Zion's children, but not before we see that beautiful image in verse 19. Zion's been ransacked and ruined. There's a reason she feels abandoned and forsaken. You just look at her crumbling walls. You just look at her pillaged temple, the looted homes, and the burnt out marketplace. But a day is coming when even, when even, uh, sorry guys, my mic's doing some funny things there. But a day is coming when even a restored Zion will be too narrow to hold all who are rushing into her. It'll be worse than the inbound 401 on a Monday morning. The city's going to be overrun. And that's when the mother image really takes over. Verse 20, I said, tells us that it's Zion's children who are filling her city. And that leaves Mother Zion confused. According to verse 21, she was bereaved and barren. In other words, the children she had 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 died, and she is unable to bear anymore. There's a reason she was barren. It's because she'd been left all alone, it says. I hope I'm not spoiling anything for you kids who are here but it takes two to make a baby. And so, Mother Zion, being all alone, asked the obvious question at the end of verse 21, from where have these come? And God answers in verse 22. He raised up his signal. He's shown the bat signal up in the sky and suddenly kings and queens are appearing, carrying Mother Zion's babies whom they have fostered, whom they have nursed. They're coming from all over the globe and as they bring the children in, they're bowing to Zion, eating her dust, so to speak. What is this bat signal that he raised up? Signal is another one of those Isaiahic clues like the word servant. He first introduced this one all the way back in chapter 5, and he's been developing it at various points, points all along. I want to look at just one of those places. So turn back to chapter 11 with me. Chapter 11. This is the exciting thing about doing the whole book of Isaiah, covering all the verses. You get to see these kind of connections that you might miss otherwise. So chapter 11, verse 10, starting in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, And from the coastlands of the sea, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The signal he raises up is the root of Jesse, the signal he raises up is the servant. We just heard about in the previous prophecy the one shining as a light to the coastlands. When this signal is raised Mother Zion, barren, bereaved, spinster, that Mother Zion gets overrun with children. Children coming from all the nations so much so that her city can't contain them all. It's an audacious prophecy. How in the world could this possibly be fulfilled? But it doesn't stop. In verses 24 to 26, another objection is raised. How can this be? Can the mighty have their prey taken from them? Verse 24, can the lawful captives of the tyrant be sided with? I think that captures the Hebrew behind the last line of verse 24. Uh, The lawful captives of the tyrants, can they be sided with? And God says, yes. Yes. I can do it. I have the power. I'm stronger than the mighty. I can redeem those who were lawfully taken captive by the tyrant. And for those nations that rage against me, they'll be left in such a desperate state, they'll be cannibalizing one another. I might add, for all eternity, they'll be cannibalizing one another. Because such is the condition of those who make themselves enemies of God. And the result of this rescue, according to verse 26, is that all flesh will know that he's the Savior. Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, or the Mighty One of Jacob, our Redeemer. So do you see the audacity of this prophecy? Written when Israel was a tiny nation, hanging on by her fingernails against the mighty Assyrians... Written when Isaiah is just foretold that the Babylonians will arise after the Assyrians and fully devastate Jerusalem. Mother Zion will have children she didn't know she had streaming into her and her enemies will be driven away from her. God's going to redeem Zion and crush the mighty enemies that laid claim to her. How could this be? But this far-fetched foretelling is finally fulfilled. Can't resist myself. Let me show you. I told you that servant is an Isaiahic clue that develops like a Polaroid picture. And the final stage of that development in Isaiah comes in the famous chapter fifty-three. Where the servant is likened to a lamb who has become a sacrifice for our sins. If you've been in the church, any Christian church for very long, you know Isaiah 53. It contains some of the most clear and compelling, compelling prophecy about the cross of Jesus in all of Scripture. Have you ever noticed the very first thing said? after Isaiah 53 concludes. Have you ever noticed that? Look with me. There's Isaiah 53. It ends. First thing, there's no chapter divisions in the original Hebrew Bible. First thing in chapter 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh. And it goes on. That's where it goes. The death of Jesus makes way for people from all nations to become barren Israel's true children. But Paul puts a lot of flesh on this in Romans 9 through 11. He kind of explains how it works. The picture is really compellingly painted for us in Revelation 7, which I already referenced. But the idea is that Christ makes a way through his his death on the cross for our sins so that all who have faith in him. All who unite themselves to serve in Israel can become part of his covenant people. His death didn't just rescue Israel. It was death for the sins of the whole world. For mine and for yours. In his hands, graven on his hands are the marks of his love for us. Etched in iron, marks that could never be erased we know we are ever on his mind, ever on his heart, ever on his hands. It's proven by the cross. And because of that cross, for eternity, Mother Zion will be densely populated with her joyous children singing praises to Yahweh and enjoying the goodness of his light and freedom. We can take that to the bank. We have seen how it's true. These preposterous prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus. I want to conclude by skipping, or by going back to a line I skipped over. You might have noticed that I skipped it. It's at the end of verse 23. I did read it at the beginning. Before I read it, I want you to remember verse 14. This this chapter is written to people who felt as though God had forsaken and forgotten them. What do these two audacious prophecies and their ultimate fulfillment teach us? According to verse 23, look there with me as I read. And as I read it, embrace it by faith as God's word to you. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, you are a mighty fortress that we can trust when we feel forsaken, when their circumstances seem to indicate you have not comforted us, you promise us that we are on your mind, that you love us even more profoundly than a mother loves her little baby. And These prophecies that we see so powerfully fulfilled in Christ are a reminder that when it seems as though we're forgotten, forsaken, those who wait for you will never be put to shame. And so help us to to trust you. In Christ's name, amen.